Hello everyone and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast based on writers sitting around drinking coffee and or occasionally other spirits and talking about anything and everything. We may use explicit language and will almost certainly drop F-bombs, but none of that is the point or the drive of the content, so consider us PG-13. There will be rants and raves and occasionally readings. There will be conflicting creative advice driven by at least three disparate points of view. Today we have a special guest, um, David Speakman, and as well with me in the studio, I have our web spider, David Welsh. This is episode 12, Online Zines and Game Writing. I'm a little grumpy because everybody else in my writing group all went off to either Burning Man or Worldcon in Dublin, leaving me alone, so alone. What am I, chopped liver? David's chopped liver, also known as Pate. Welcome, David Speakman. Thank you. Uh, I invited David in because David has had a long and interesting career in writing and many different styles and completely justifies some of my earlier claims on different paths to writing, technical writing. So, David, you started out as a journalist, correct? Yeah, it was accidental. I actually went to college for um, public relations and um, business communication, and it just so happened that my first job in uh, college was working at an NPR station, and I ended up doing promotions and writing a weekly column, and it just went from there. Cool. What kind of weekly column on a topic, or did they just let you go wild? Or? It was this week on NPR for um, in Muncie, Indiana, and then um, I ended up getting a job at the, the local student newspaper, um, writing a column because I was the president of a local um, organization. And then after I graduated, the only job I could get, I graduated in the early 90s during the H.W. Um, uh, Bush recession. And the only job I could get was a family friend owned a local community newspaper. And I got a job as a photographer and reporter. And from there, I went to a daily newspaper. And then after that, I got a job at a TV station. And then that brought me to Silicon Valley. Um, and then I ended up working in um, dot com writing. And I ended up being all kinds of um, different jobs. I've never not written, and I've never not gotten paid for my writing. <laughs> now, David here are, this my God, we have two, two Daves, Daves here. Mm-hmm. Dave Squared, Dave Primus, was saying that uh, he didn't feel that technical writing was real writing. And I was saying I disagree. So you, we were saying something interesting when we were getting ready to uh, chat about this, um, talking about game writing. Well, game writing mostly, uh, there's two different types of writing you do in game writing. One is the creative writing where you're world building and you're developing a mythos and um, um around the concept of what your game is. The other part, probably the more important part for the person who's actually going to play the game, is writing the rule book. And you um, craft a message um, where you try to relay, without actually talking to the person through words, about the instructions on how to do it, and you try to instill some of the flavor, but it's mostly technical writing. 
And technical writing is not creative writing, where you're not pulling things out of the air, out of the amorphous mass. That was my point during that podcast, by the way, <laughs> not what you said. Right. So you're not taking things out of the amorphous mass and you're creating, giving it life. What you're doing instead is you are very precisely writing in a way that is to communicate to the audience exactly what you mean. And I think that technical writing... Um, learning how to be a technical writer will help a creative writer because you get out of your own head and you start thinking through the eyes of the reader. And I think that's a very important skill uh, for any writer to have because most of us write to be read. Absolutely. I was going to say, even just on played board games, of which I am very fond, uh, does everybody have a list in their head of the worst game instructions ever? Because for me, it was the very first edition of Betrayal at House on the Hill that had to publish 22 pages of errata because it was not written clearly in the first place. It's like they um, turn over the game instruction writing to Ikea. You just don't know what's going on. <laughs> you follow the pictures most of the time, and most of us end up playing games wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I, I found, and yet others that you just got sucked in, and we mentioned this in another podcast, was White Wolf, which did not have as great a game mechanic system as Nightlife did, but their story writing was better. So when you were saying, it's like, okay, write a story, here's the mechanics of what vampires are like, now put that in the modern world. And that's, I think, the creative bridge between technical writing and creative writing. Well, and a lot of times with game companies, and the reason why we got on this topic is because my current company I work for makes games. And that's why we got on this topic. But um, the uh, the thing about game writing is you usually end up with more than one writer. You end up with the creative writer who's writing the mythos, the story, the um, character interactions, the backgrounds. Then you end up with another writer who is actually explaining how to play the game. And they don't always mesh well, and that's probably what happened. That I know exactly that's what happens with White Wolf um, and, uh, and or Wizards of the Coast. Uh, but um, unfortunately, that happens with most game companies. And, and I was just looking, what, every once in a while I read authors' bios, Jonathan Howard, who wrote the magnificent uh, Johannes Cabal Necromancer series, his background is solidly, I wrote games. And I, so that is a perfectly viable route into market. You know, if you one day want to publish serial novels, we'll write anything, but games are a good place to start. Well, right? especially, yeah, especially, I'm sorry, I'll just step on what you're saying, but especially yeah. with a game company, because when you um, are writing and you say, hey, I can not only do the creative part, but I can do the technical aspect, you're more likely to get a job because that's one person they're writing, they're paying. Mm-hmm. It's most likely, the, even though you're making more, their overall bill is going to be less. So a game company is going to be more interested in you if you know both the technical aspects. It's easy. Um, technical writing for this is just a recipe on how to play a game. Yeah. So if you have ever written a recipe down, you already have the mechanics of how to be a technical writer. Yeah, you say that, but there is some crap recipe writing out there, too. <laughs> right? Well, some people don't have it down, but they do it anyway. True of any writing. Yeah, yeah I mean, there's you can either, A, follow the formula, which for a recipe is, here's the ingredients and the amount and percentage, and then, you know, preheat to this, you know, the basic step-by-step instructions. Right. And I have found... I don't know if it's different, but these days it's harder and harder to follow recipes that I read online that are written these days because they're missing the formula. So there's an importance of formula in in that and in any kind of writing, I suppose. Well, it's like they illuminate it, like in the old days where they had the pictures and they had the backstory because everybody wants because they read really good writers of of recipe books and they want to write like that, but they forget the basic is somebody's reading this because they want to know how to make some food. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you got to get to the point. 
Yeah. So what I was going to say earlier was you mentioned Jonathan Howard um, and his background uh, is in. Sorry. Is in game writing. Um, sorry, Jonathan. Do you think? <laughs> do you think he was the creative writer or the technical writer? I think we should totally ask him. Uh, so, Jonathan, somewhere out there, you're going to get a Twitter question from me. Uh, if it goes to Johannes, Johannes, please refer it to Jonathan if you two are still speaking. Yeah, um, and it is because the recipe writing is harder. And now people say, oh, everyone consumes things via video. And we talked to Alice and Alice said, yes, we do absolutely consume as a younger generation video. And yet you can't Google uh, video words you still somewhere things need to be in print for you to say, how many cups of flour do I need to make 20 loaves of French bread? And that's, that's something that somewhere somebody still needs to do the mechanical bits of it. So uh, to jump from kind of gaming and instructions over on another side of it, you mentioned the journalism. Tell us about, um, I, kn I met David, David originally from Tightbeam magazine when you were running an online zine. How did, right. that, how did you get started with that? Well, Tightbeam has an interesting and storied history. It started in the early 60s, either 1960 or 1961, and I don't know the actual date because it was started by Marion Zimmer Bradley, and she's dead, and so you can't ask her. But um, it started out as a letter zine, and just to give you a little bit of... Uh, tell, tell everyone what a letter, what a letter zine, zine is. <laughs> letter zines don't exist anymore because we have the internet. But back in um, the, the ancient days, when I was a teenager, I belonged to this organization called the N3F. It's the National Fantasy um, Fan Federation, or N3F.org, if you, it still exists. And what that is, is it's a fandom um, club... It's national, and in the olden days, um, fans either got together by going to conventions, and between conventions, which usually happened once a year, or if you go to multiple conventions, you may go to like three or four of them if you're a normal person. Um, uh, what people used to do is they used to write letters, and they would make friends. But um, letter zines were a collection of letters written by different people about themselves, about things that they've discovered, movie reviews, things on TV, uh, things to look for, upcoming conventions that you've not heard of. and uh, I want to read them now. <laughs> it's and called they, the Internet. It's now it's not, it's a replacement Internet, but before, back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and early 90s, um, it, this was all done through letter zines, and the reason why they were created is because there was no mass market um, so regular paid media wouldn't do it, so a bunch of people started doing it on their own. And that's really what a zine is. It's amateur publication that you make, whether it's electronic or in paper. You make it and you distribute it to people, and it's usually to a very select subset of, of people who are interested in that same topic. And so I ended up inheriting Tightbeam um, uh, after uh, like around 2010, 2011, many years after it almost died. And I transformed it from a letter zine, which people don't use anywhere because of the internet and email and Facebook and social media. I transformed it into something called a gen zine, uh, focusing on fiction. And it was the Is idea. Is gen standing for genre in there just as a. General. Oh, gen. okay. Didn't you? <laughs> but no, it's fine. No, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 yeah. So, gen stands for general, and it's just a general topic. It's about whatever the editor wants it to be about. And I turned it into a fiction zine with some news and reviews for fandom oriented science fiction, fantasy, and supernatural horror. 
and uh, that that started under me, and now currently it's continued to that incarnation under a different editor. Usually, somebody is an editor of um, this particular zine for a few years until they get burned out, and then they pass it on to the next person. And um, being involved in zine writing is a great way uh, for a person to learn how to publish regularly, write, edit, and um, do um, layout uh, for uh, publications. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I had the same gig for the International Fantasy Gaming Society for a while. <laughs> what, what did you do for That was IFGS. That was Denver Boulder. Yeah, I uh, published... Uh, the local newsletter, and I can't. Re- I don't. I don't even remember which newsletters I published. A couple of them. But. Right now, that was uh, based. The IFGS was based on. I think the name didn't. The name come from a book from Stephen Barnes Chance and Steve, oh, Stephen Barnes. Did I have it wrong? Yeah, and Larry Niven. And Larry Niven. Yeah. So that was the uh, right. LARPing. LARPing in the nineties, uh, as uh-huh. it were. Yep. And. The IFGS sort of ended up growing out from there and becoming a bigger thing, but still probably not as big as, like, Emptgard and some of the other... Well, I don't know, because I haven't been involved in the scene for a long time now, (laughs) and neither have you, as far as I know. I have not. Now, here's a question for imagining Tightbeam as a zine. Was it just in a... Is it a website that you have, or oh, what so is it? Yeah, well, yeah so the the N3F is uh, exists, and the um, how does out, N3F relate to Tightbeam? Tell me, I, they own it. So okay. basically, they don't really own it. So N3F is it's a collection of fans, and so the fans kind of own it collectively. What does N3F stand N3F for? N3F stands for the National Fantasy Fan Federation. Oh, so it should be N. Not another three fans is what I was no, thinking. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of hilarious. But um, it's been in existence since the 1940s. It's the, it's the oldest national fan organization. And most zines themselves, zine is just short for magazine, and um, uh, in a zine itself is usually an amateur or it's usually given up free. And they very rarely pay anything to anybody. And mo- the person who does the most of the work is the editor who actually puts it together. The writers do a lot of work. Editing writers is interesting. <laughs> Uh, to say the least, and and if you get involved with a zine, um, you you uh, will probably be pressured into editing one soon because they're hard work. But um, if you join a, an organization like N3F, which costs anything from zero dollars to eighteen dollars a year, depending on what you're willing to Ooh, pay, big spending. What you're willing to pay, um, you get access to all of their zines for free. But they encourage you to get to do a paid membership because it helps pay for the zines and everything to be made. I think they currently have like six or seven zines that they do, ranging from general zines to a club zine. They got things um, uh, de- delegating um, uh, their topic only to like things like movies or manga or whatever your fandom is, whatever floats your boat. And if you really like something and want to write, you can probably make your own on any topic you really care about as long as it's family friendly. Now let's say I, let's let's pretend here. I wanted to have all the uh, the genie zine, and I wanted to run it through N3F. How would I how would I do such a? Actually, that happens a lot. So what? So there are a couple of ways to get started in zine writing. The, the probably the most easy way to do it is contact an editor of a zine that you're interested in and start writing for it and ask the editor questions because everyone loves to talk about what they do and they will explain to you how they do everything. If you want to start your own zine, it's as simple as. Um, if you have a word processing program, say Word, if you use Mac or if you use, um, uh, excuse me, if you use PC or, excuse me, Windows, I'm the old person, I say PC. If you use uh, any kind of word processing program and you can save as PDF, 
that's usually the easiest way because anybody um, who has access to a tablet or to a computer or the internet has the access um, has the ability to read a PDF. So if you any word processing program where you can save to PDF, you're already about eighty percent of the way of making a zine. The only thing you have to do after that is write stuff. Um, drag and drop pictures and move things around and make it so it's readable by other people. If you're passionate about something, odds are there's at least 20 to 2,000 other people out there who are also passionate about the same project or same uh, topic. Make a zine, publish it, and distribute it. Well, the- yeah, you, you say that. How do I find those other 20,000 people, though, is the interesting. So in the modern age where everything's internet, the easiest way to do that is to find um, groups on, say, Facebook or through chat rooms or through um, organizations like the N3F um, who will actually find audiences for you. So is this like uh, Instagram or which which chat rooms do they? <laughs> you see, I do chat rooms, and for me that was I remember IRC, and so I'm old. So is there a modern? Well, no, no. It'd be like things like yeah, the it'd be the microblogging places, which would be things like Tumblr or um, Instagram or um, or Facebook groups. Any any place where people tend to get into a fandom. And when you are in a Facebook group, you can just say, "Hey, this is where I have a, the zine that I put on this topic. If you're interested, go here and look at it." Neat. And uh, somewhere in there, I presume you also learn how to build web pages because do you want to have your owner? Is that the advantage of going in through an N3F the, and or using... any other organization? So right. there, are, there are also there are just there are many organizations that do it. I think N3F for those of us who are interested in science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Um, that's probably the easiest way to go through it. There's also uh, uh, different online fanzine um, uh, organizations that actually host fanzines just google fanzine and you'll get tons of places where you can um that'll gladly take your zine put it up and give you credit so two two topics overlapping i'm sure there there's got to be fanzines for fanfic yes (laughs) yes yes uh fanfic if um, i'm i'm sure that you know fanfic is a loaded term so people think it's horrible Mm -hmm. um other authors who are published now, got their start in fanfic, and totally encourage it, because it, it, when you borrow another person's world in their viewpoint, it allows you to get rid of the world building and focus on character development and other parts which um, are very much needed in, um, in fiction writing. Oh, yes. I, I had a friend who helped me by reading up the... Well, she pointed me towards fanfic about Hannibal. So for those of you who love Hannibal Lecter in the news, it was the fanfic romance between Hannibal and the uh, agent. Oh, slash fic. Slash fiction. <laughs> there's a, there's an, that actually started like most of fandom with Star Trek. So Was that uh, Kirk, Kirk and Spock? Spock? Yeah, Kirk yeah, Spock figured. fanfic. That, that was in the 1960s. Um, there was a woman whose name is Jacqueline Lichtenberg. She is an author on her in her own right who is written and... Uh, entire series of books um, that are loosely based on Star Trek, but it started out as Star Trek fanfic. She and her group actually created the um, the modern um, movement of the way current conventions run when they started doing um, uh, Star Trek conventions back in the late 60s, early 70s. Right. I've, I've seen pictures from the earlier conventions. As near as I can tell, conventions in the 70s wore less clothes. Um. Well, that was the 70s, though, so... <laughs> I- 
<laughs> I know it's, it's like it's hard to think you, you always think of the next generation as being you know less confirmed but frankly I got to say something about them boomers uh, well, no, well, <laughs> well even the, those of us who are Gen X remember back in the 80s when shorts used to be short and they didn't go below your knee now everything looks like everyone's wearing culottes so it's it goes in waves I think that um, it's changing it'll yeah. change back people will start showing ankle again pretty soon now, now, books on fanfic, though... It depends on where the economy goes. <laughs> it does. Can't uh, afford much fabric. Judith uh, Shepeshi, our, our other lawyer friend, David here also has a law degree, um, but she came in and talked about the challenge of trademarking and, and copywriting and where fanfic, and it's kind of that magic gray world. Really. Yeah, well, the, the weird thing about, yeah, and I have a background in intellectual property, too, and um, trademarking and copy, there's, there, and I'm sure you talked about, there are the four different levels of yep. intellectual property. Yep. The ones you have to worry about are um, unfair trade practices and copyright when you're dealing with doing fanfic. Not really trademark as much, but yeah. So I can still write a Chekhov and Scotty you know, the foreigners get together and... Oh, yeah. As long as you don't charge anything for it and you never have any intent to make money off of it, you can do anything you want. We have a wonderful thing called the First Amendment in the United States. Yeah, but the challenge is... Uh, oh, so I suppose it's, you know, my friends that draws really cool things like a Jackal Design, she she makes things for our Stormtrooper team and occasionally puts them up and then gets the cease and desist orders from Disney because Disney has no sense of humor. Right, so. right, right. But yeah, well, in Disney now, since they bought 20th Century Fox, they own almost everything now. Yeah, it's a little disappointing how they've uh, rolled all that up there. Their patent uh, list must be enormous. They tend to trademark a lot of things. In fact, they have things under copyright, but most of their copyrights from the earliest things like Mickey Mouse cartoons are going to be expiring in a couple of years, and so they ended oh. up trademarking Yeah, Mickey and Mouse. they're actually going to expire this time because I don't think they can get the, uh, the, trademark, yeah, the trademarks uh, extended another time. Well, trademarks are, trademarks are forever as long as you keep them up. But, uh, yeah, well, but copyright okay, copyright, is I mean, copyright, copyright, yeah. copyright becomes public domain after a few years, and the United States is the longest copyright in the well, world. Well, and, and part of that is because Disney has lobbied to have it extended a couple yes. times. Yes. Right? Yeah, it was, yeah, it was the Sonny Bono Act of um, in the 1990s that um, extended copyright. It's for corporations. It goes out to 99 years. For a person, it, it, it only goes, I think it goes 70-some years if it's an individual. So wonder, Disney's got special dispensation because of that. I wonder if there's anywhere a website that somebody's put together and said, when the authors die, yes. when you can start writing. Oh, is there yes. one? Where? Yes, it's run out of the University of North Carolina and... Um, or Duke, when it, it's somewhere in North Carolina. We're going to link this, by the way. <laughs> yeah, so you just do um, uh, Public Domain Day, and it's always the 1st of January, and they list all of the works that are going public domain every year. And between the late 90s and actually last year, they would just say, this would have been public domain had... United States not screwed everybody over and a lot of things go into it allow copyrights to expire and if you want to talk about that, that's a very interesting topic <laughs> copyrights expiring away that's important but um, as of this year 19 excuse me 2019 uh, we actually had new we're things. coming into the roaring 20s we actually had aware, new yeah. things um, uh, that actually have started going to public domain in the US so I'm wondering if, if we're going to see a resurgence of uh, Edgar Allan Poe and some of the others any time now, because I'm ready for new Poe works the same way that they've done early Sherlock and other. 
we had uh, we had a Tarzan book that just came in. A couple um, more uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs stuff is going to be coming through. Also, uh, I think also coming up is Buck Rogers in a couple of years is going to become public really yeah. yeah. See, I remember Buck Rogers was the TV show that we all watched in the seventies. So right, it's based on a, a, a comic strip that was in the nineteen twenties and thirties. But uh-huh. those will start coming into public domain soon. Awesome. So they come into public domain as they were written, right? So if somebody has a career of 10 or 20 years of writing, say Edgar Rice Burroughs yeah. writing Tarzan, then the the novels come online one at a time mm-hmm. as they were Yeah, or John Carter and stuff like that. Yeah, so what happens is, so the character itself will be public domain. So you uh, can, like for instance, with, with, with Buck Rogers mm-hmm. um, and um, what's, a, what's another one that's... Uh, well, you, were, you just said John Carter, but John, they made a movie of John Carter. Doesn't, does that did. change things? Fucking Disney. <laughs> so, <laughs> what changes things if they added anything new to it? The new content that Disney added, okay. that's copyrighted. Okay. And that'll be copyrighted for 99 years, so don't even bother that stuff. Mm-hmm. But, um, but the stuff that was the original source material, the name John Carter, they will use it that he's a guy who's from Earth and he ends up going into space someplace called Mars or Barsoom. Uh, that is all public domain. So you can use that concept. You can use those characters that were from the original source material. You just can't use what Disney added to it. Right. Right. For ex- for instance, um, L. Frank Baum's um, Oz, yes. everything he wrote, all the art in his books that came out before 1923, um, that is all public domain. But if you go to the old MGM musical where they changed Glinda from being the Good Witch of the North to the Good Witch of the South, I'm sorry, South to the Good Witch of the North, they had it backwards, and they gave her green skin and that kind of stuff, that's not in the book. So that stuff is, is still copyrighted by MGM for a few more years until 1939 stuff goes to public domain. I was liking how Gregory Maguire has been writing, you know, pits of it like the Confessions of an Ugly Stepsister and Wicked and now there's musicals on it, so right. there's it's got its own little bit of he did his own twist. Oh right? yeah, yeah. And then also so he gave um the Wicked Witch a name which didn't exist in the uh, Elphaba, books. Yeah. Elphaba or whatever, which is actually L uh L.F. Bomb, El Faba, comes from his name. Which is, but that is copyrighted. So he actually owns that. So nobody else can call um, uh, the Wicked Witch that name because he he has that under copyright. Boy. So <laughs> so for something like uh, John Carter, then that that character from the original source material becomes public domain. What after the first copyrighted novel expires? Or yes. The first he, mention of him. And yes. And then yes. And then, but um, and any any adventures that he has in that first book or first story or first mm-hmm. comic or first anything in print, right. once that becomes public domain, anybody can borrow it and use it and, right. and, and go on from that. So um, that um, allows people to um, use concepts, words, uh, excerpts mm-hmm. in new works without having to uh, pay royalties right. to somebody who was long dead to some company who's never knew that person. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, without giving, without, without having to share any of your um, income with um, some some big corporation, right? But if you went to Venus ten years later, you have to wait those ten years before you can send yes. them to Venus yourself. No, no, you can send the person to Venus because Venus exists. Oh, oh you just okay. can't. You can't call it whatever they. Call you can't. It. You, if they had like, if the spaceship was called Venus Four, you can't use a spaceship called Venus Four to yeah. get to Venus okay. because that concept is still copyrighted. Yeah. But the um, excuse me, those that um, that um, order of things, mm-hmm. John Carter to Venus in Venus Four mm-hmm. would be still copyrighted. But um, if you sent John Carter to Venus, which is 
Yeah. Uh, you, you can do whatever you want because Venus exists. Okay. Um, you're not making so, you're not making something up. You just have to. You got to make the John Carter goes to Uranus joke. No, you don't. Yeah, I do. No, you don't. It Are was inevitable. Dead. Done. It's done. It's, it's, it's <laughs> Move on. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, I was I was thinking about this in terms of the it's the making money thing coming back. How, if you're just writing fanfic and you're not planning to profit from it, you just want people to read it and you want to write it. Yet, there have been different mushes that I remember, like the minute they came up with, well, it was a mud originally, um, multi-user dimension, that they made one of Penzik, and then Penzik said, yeah, you can't use Penzik in your mud, which they really didn't have a legal ground to stand on for that, because it's not a copyrighted thing, it's just well, a place. it's a name. They have a trademark on it, which is similar. It's mm. so it, if they filed a trademark. So <laughs> so so what happens is so they have this. So whenever you make anything and you have, you have a business doing it, um, you have a trademark that's automatically done and under common law. You don't have to file for anything. You right, right. Own Judith it. told us a little bit about the, you how you don't have to file it no, to get it. You don't right? have to file it. You, it. It exists automatically. Now, if somebody starts using it and they start stepping on your brand and they start changing it in a way that you think harms you, hurt you, then that's called unfair trade. Yes, yeah, and, and I didn't think it was. This was just where you go around, stomp around, you know, you're just kill two the, checks and right. puff, and it's, puff, and right. Yeah. But if you're not making any, um, if you're not making any uh, business off of it, if you're not, there's no pecuniary interest. There's no mm -hmm. money exchanging mm -hmm. hands. You're not affecting their ability to make money. They have no um, say in in what you do because. Like I said, we have the First Amendment in the United States. You're allowed to pretty much do whatever you want as long as it doesn't harm other people. Right. right. That makes sense. So follow the money once again. Always follow the money. Yeah. Uh, do you have any other current projects you're working on right now you want to tell people about in advance? Well, right, uh, right now, uh, the company I'm working for called Double Critical, doublecritical.com, uh, uh, we're making games. Um, which is I was a Kickstarter on one of them. It's like yay. Oh yeah, that that's a political game. That was our first one. We wanted to do a simple game. Oh my gosh, this is such a <laughs> sticky wicket. It's a simple game, um, so that we can make all of our mistakes in because we're we're new to game making, um, for um, for uh, profit, and hopefully, and uh, so we decided to make this political game. This little, little card game with a couple tokens and we made about every single mistake you could on the way where we're losing so much money on it we just hope somebody <laughs> buys it because we we have Ooh. other games coming out when that it, are actually when, it, when it comes out and is available uh, by the way we will link to this on the thing so feel free to go and buy the political game <laughs> oh yes please because we have we actually have um more fantasy oriented with things with like magic and monsters that are coming out too but oh, I don't uh, know. sometimes the political is kind of magic and monsters in its own there way. are a lot it's of monsters like, but it's come on it's like kremlin we all played kremlin and <laughs> it's well, yeah. the well, soviet yeah. the old soviet political game yeah. so this one's similar no, it's not. It's, well, it's, no. it's, it's totally. It's completely nonpartisan, and there's. It's. It's all. Uh, the only thing fantasy about it is that there are no real parties. It's based on the U.S. on politics, but there. It's not um, partisan in any way. It's just more. Drink some beer, eat some pretzels, and screw over your um, friends. Fair so enough. It's kind of fun. Um, and the next one you have coming up. We have. Uh, we have one that's based on. It's, has, it takes characters through three eras. One is like um, Middle Earth type, but it's not Middle Earth because that's copyrighted. Right. <laughs> so it's like uh, trolls and elves, and then it goes to then you bring them into modern day, and then you send everybody into space. So you have things like trolls and demons <gasps> and people trolls in, space. in space. Right. And um, you basically it's kind of a combination between a card building and a war game, and it's kind of like Risk, but it's not really. 
<laughs> Look forward to it. Um, we're going to put links to the interesting things we've mentioned um, on our website, which is www.ridersdrinkingcoffee.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. We answer email and messages. Please, for the love of God, somebody write to us. It's very, very lonely. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, which is a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre McGaffey-Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spider is David Welsh. Our intro music is Pretty Maid Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with a Morning Person, both by Michael Engberg. You can hear more from Michael Engberg on manyhatsmusic.com. Today's sponsor is Jackal Designs. They are going to set up and let you buy cool Riders Drinking Coffee swag, and you can find Jackal's design on Facebook. Thank you.